Would you like an opinion on a financial matter you're dealing with? Whether it's about retirement, investments, taxes, or 401ks, Scott Hansen and Pat McLean would like to help you by answering your call. To join Allworth's Money Matters, call now at 833-99-WORTH. That's 833-99-WORTH. Welcome to Allworth's Money Matters. Scott Hansen and Pat McLean. Glad you are with us as we're talking about financial matters. Both myself and my co-host, we're both practicing financial advisors, helping people like yourself throughout the week. We broadcast on the weekends to help make some sense of what's going on in the world. In yes, it's a different time. The the world and everything seems to be getting increasingly crazy. My son, it was interesting. My son, I, I saw my son last week and he was up for the weekend. And he says, he says, I give the country another 50 years. Really? Yeah, he's a 24-year-old kid. And then what said, happens? Well, I don't, like, um, and I was still troubled by it. Like, do a lot of our younger generation feel that way about their country? Well, what happens in 50 years? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to be around in 50 years, most likely. Yeah. He most likely will be. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. And then in 50 years, he'll be a crotchety old guy because he's a crotchety young guy now. <laughs> he's actually not crotchety, but <laughs> he's maybe a little pessimistic. But anyway, obviously lots of weird things. The financial markets have been, um, as you know, gone a little crazy. Well, I don't know about crazy. Maybe some normalcy has returned. You know, we use the term, I use this term on the show occasionally saying risk premium. And you always say that means it's nothing a technical to term. anyone. <laughs> <laughs> just reminds me when I talk to a medical doctor and they bring some something up I have that's like a foreign language I just kind of look at them like yeah actually so but risk premium is is the 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 cost associated the premium payment that you pay or you form, receive in the form of risk for an above uh risk free rate of return which would be the US treasury a, yes so any treasury bill Correct. Same people who print the dollars. Yes. So any amount of return that you expect or will get over a period of time, that one of the costs associated with that is the volatility in the marketplace. Called a risk premium. Yeah. Well, and one thing that we've seen quite a bit in the last year, whether it's going to get worse or not, inflation. Just a little. Uh, and I, most people nearing retirement – Clearly, if you've been retirement, normal retirement age, as to say, you remember what inflation was like. I'm 55. I was thinking about this the other day. When inflation was super high, late 70s, early 80s, I was in middle school and high school. So if the Big Mac went up a little bit, I, I, just, I didn't seem... I, I remember my parents talking about it. I clearly remember waiting in line for gasoline, odd and even days, when because uh, of some of the pricing pressures there that was going on. But... Um, Inflation was nasty. Really bad. And then we've had, ever since the early 80s, this steady decline of inflation. And so for a lot of people, looking at inflation is like this. I remember the first bought house I bought. Now I sound really old. The interest <laughs> rate was 8.5%. <laughs> I had dinner with my mom and stepdad last night. And he was telling me he wanted to that he could fill up his whole car for what he pays for one gallon of gas now. Oh, I didn't 
point out to him his net worth today might be slightly different <laughs> yes. than it was then. But anyway, so uh, inflation, we know it's on the top of everyone's mind. That's why we thought we would uh, have an expert come and join us and share some thoughts about what he believes is going on with inflation and uh, what we might be able to do about that. So um, we've got Nathan Lewis joining us. Nathan is the author of the book Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. He wrote this along with uh, Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames. So, Nathan, thanks for joining All Worth Money Matters. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah. Uh, what what made you write this book? Well, I've written a number of books about uh, monetary economics. This is, I guess, fourth or fifth, depending on how you're counting. Uh, and I've been friends with Steve Forbes for a long time, in large part because he has an understanding of monetary issues that is far better than most conservative, uh, you know, kind of general policy people. And we could tell when all the central banks in the world went kind of hog wild in 2020, essentially creating a lot of money out of thin air, that there was going to be a problem. And we've also had a, an understanding of all the stupid excuses that usually come out from the government when the when these events happen afterwards. You don't hear much about that, right? It, it, even it's the most obvious thing in the world, but when has people been pointing the finger at the Fed for creating $3 trillion out of thin air a couple of years ago? Don't hear about that. Anyway, uh, so we knew that we were going to have an inflation problem, and we knew that the typical solutions and, and babble around that were going to be as nonsensical as they've always been, and we were thought we could do something about that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I, I mean, you're starting to see from some politicians blaming the uh, big corporations for their greed and price gouging or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. So last so, I looked, the companies charge whatever they they can get away with. That's and the marketplace chooses to decide if they're going to buy that product or service or not. And if there was an excess cash in the system created by the government, right? Then then they wouldn't be able to afford to buy this stuff. Correct. Well, that's it. Doesn't really quite work that way in our view. To get an idea of, of what's going on right now, uh, you know, this term inflation, it just kind of becomes a, a grab bag of all kinds of stuff that might potentially lead to rising prices. And we actually have a, a pretty wide range of things going on. Um, for example, we all, we all know that there's kind of supply and demand issues. There's various shortages and, and issues in, in specific goods and services. And those are real and they're pretty unusual. We didn't really have that problem in the 1970s that was really different then. Uh, we can't really find any. I mean, when's the last time in your, your your whole life that auto dealers had no no product on the lot? Bizarre, isn't I it? Can't, you know, I, I it swear, I drive by one on the way home. World War Two. I drive by one on the way home, and I always look at it because it's just it's just I find it fascinating. The showroom is almost empty, and the lot is maybe a third full. Yeah, and you go and you go on the lot, and it's all used cars. <laughs> anyway, uh, so anyway, so, so there are real issues that are happening now, which are not monetary. Um, not do the central bank. But then there is also, on top of that, there are all these issues that have to do with the currency, which are not supply-demand issues at all, um, except for supply-demand of currency, arguably. Um, it's just central bank you know, goofing off with our floating fiat currency. Um, and it's easy to understand. The best way to understand it, we find, is to, it's not like money-chasing goods or something like that, but to think of it simply as a decline in the value of the currency. Um, we think that the, the dollar, not surprisingly, given the increased supply, had a decrease in value uh, around, around 2020. And now, and then af over time, 
markets adjust to that. So it's very, you know. Yeah, why, I mean, like this year, it's, declines. I find it peculiar that this year we're seeing the dollar rise. So we've got inflation, but the dollars have about 8% for the year versus other currencies. Um, yeah. Um, so actually, I think that all currencies around the world, all the major currencies, had a step lower in 2020 and maybe early 2021. But actually, the Federal Reserve has been more responsible than all the other major central banks and has actually maintained a fairly reliable currency value over the last 12 or 18 months or so. So they're actually kind of doing an okay job there. And the and the other current the other central banks have had a much more lax approach. You know, there's still negative interest rates in Europe. I mean, probably yeah. beyond that now. Uh, negative policy rates. And uh, and people look at that and say, well, these guys are not very serious. So that's one of the reasons their currencies are losing value. But the same thing happened in the 70s, too. Uh, in the 70s, the, the German mark and the Japanese yen double, basically doubled against the dollar. But they had inflation, too. It's ba- so what was happening is all the currencies were going down, but the dollar was going down more and the mark was going down less. And to, you know, to kind of take a little step back, that's more or less what's happened here. The dollar has gone down. I guess by definition, it must, right? <laughs> the dollar is less valuable yeah. to goods and services. And it, just to other currencies, that's just well, compared yeah, to other currencies. I, 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 would, I wouldn't quite say, you know, I wouldn't quite use that by definition sort of description. But, but yes, uh, we, we think that the, the, the example we use in our book, I, I say it's really easy to understand what's going on when, you, when you're talking about someone else's currency <laughs> for some reason. Uh, this is known as the money illusion. So we, if you were going to take a vacation in Mexico in the early 90s, you got about three pesos to the dollar, and you went to your favorite bar in Mexico in Cancun, and you get a $5 bill, cost 15 pesos. Today, it's about 20 pesos to the dollar. So you go through the airport, you get your pesos, you go to your bar. So now your $5 beer is 100 pesos. The price of the beer went from 15 pesos to 100 pesos. And we all know why. It's not. It's real obvious. It has to do with the value of the currency. It's there was no shortage of beer in Cancun, and that didn't happen. Yeah, but we have a floating fiat currency too, just like Mexico. We've got some central bank wise guy making stuff that like, goes along, just like Mexico. And our currency tends to decline in value too, not as badly as Mexico, but the same basic process. So that's why our beer is starting to cost more too. Um, if you think of it that way, I think that's the most. The most but but, but Nathan, so let's talk a little bit about inflation and labor in the seventies. So, and the unions' role in inflation, where they had like the United Mine Workers Union uh, uh, raises were pegged to inflation, so it created an inflationary spiral. Do you believe that was real or not real? Versus right now, less than ten percent of all labor in the United States is represented by unions and you don't see those in the contracts with the exception of the state of California that pegged their uh, minimum wage to inflation. So it, it, it is, it, was that in the seventies, did that push inflation because it started feeding on itself? And do you believe that that is something that's going to happen now? Uh, no, um, you get this kind of description typically in economic textbooks and sort of thing. And uh, you kinda you gotta understand that the seventies were one big screw up. So the guys if you read the history books by the guys who were screwing up Well the exception of the rock and roll that was produced during the seventies. Okay, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. With the so, exception so of the we, rock and we, roll. We, we, did go through a transformative so, stage so, in the seventies, yes. So when you read the textbooks that are written by the guys who are screwing up, the screw ups, it's gonna be full of erroneous stuff. So I, I think what happened in the seventies basically is real simple. 
the value of the dollar uh, basically declined by about a factor of 10. So the, the value of the dollar in the 80s, when it kind of stabilized under Volcker, was about 10% of what it was in the 70s. And not surprisingly, the cost of a barrel of oil went from about 3 bucks to about 25 bucks. And, you know, it's just as you would expect. And if you just think about it, that when you do that, all markets are going to adjust, right? They're going to adjust. And all the, you know, wage price spiral, yeah, yeah, that's just markets adjusting, right? They're kind of, you don't really blame people, right? Oh, we've well, got to blame blame the union, blame the, you know, blame everybody but the economists, right? Blame everybody but the central bank. It's always all someone else's fault. No, it's just you're being a goofball with the currency. <laughs> and, just, like, do you believe inflation's always bad? I mean, so the Federal Federal Reserve, they've kind of had a peg a low inflation rate. That's what they supposedly what they've been trying to do for the last couple of decades. Do you believe that having some level of inflation is healthy? Well, there's, there's an interesting uh, you know discussion about that. I'll try to make it pretty simple. Uh, what people usually mean by inflation is just some measured rise in the CPI. Uh, that's what they're talking. That's about. right. That's yeah. what the uh, Fed looks at. And that. And that and that is coming about from two bad processes today. One is we have various kinds of strange shortages. The other is the value of our currency went down. Uh, but actually, one thing that can cause a measured, modest price increase over time is just plain strong economy. Uh, you know, wages uh, over time, everything's healthy. The currency is pretty is reliable. Everything's fine. What happens? Well, wages go up. Typically, prices of services and rents and property values and, and asset values go up, and you end up with like a CPI in the one, two, three percent range. If, if you have a very strong economy, it can actually be in the five, eight, ten percent range. Uh, totally healthy. Uh, right. Well, what we've got now, clearly, the inflation we've got growth. right now is not terribly healthy. So, what do you? Uh, we're no. talking with Nathan Lewis, uh, author of Inflation, just came out. What it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. So, what do you? What's the cure? Yeah. What do we do? In your opinion, well, it, what gets it, us out of this comes, mess? Right, it all comes from basically you know, accurate diagnosis of, of the factors involved. Uh, don't don't just worry about CPI like you know our CPI is up or down, whatever. Well, if we really have these supply demand kind of shortages, which we do, I think, and they're strangely persistent, maybe getting worse. Well, you just got to fix that, right? You have to allow whatever it is, right? Greater home building or get some ships into the ports in California so you can get some chips to the automaker, you know, stuff like that. Nothing the, nothing the central bank can do will fix those problems, right? you got to fix those. Th those are systemic. Yes. Yeah, and we kind of understand that. And then there's the currency stuff. And, and you know, there's nothing, no supply-demand issue in the world world is going to, you know, fix the currency if the central bank is, is screwing up. Um, and the answer there is, the, the the most the most basic answer is real simple. Don't if if inflation of the monetary sort comes out from a declining value of the currency, like the ten to one decline in the seventies, just stop that. Which is what Volcker did in the in the early eighties. It was kind of messy and crude, but ju you just stop it. And and you can kind of finesse it a little bit, maybe have the currency rise a little bit to compensate. But but that's the that's the basic. And how did he process. stop it? And, and, and interest rates so high. Well, one way or the other. Uh, it didn't really have anything to do with interest rates. I mean, directly uh, is you just have to have the currency stop falling in value. And Volcker, he said publicly, he, after there were, at the beginning there was a so-called monetarist experiment. It was like you know a huge mess. And then in, in 1982, he gave that up and he said, "Well, now I'm looking at gold and commodity prices. Like, you know, 
gold and commodity prices going up, I'm going to get tighter. And if gold and commodity prices are down, I'm going to get lower. And over the long term, I'm going to try to keep them kind of stable. And that's what he said he was going to do. And that's what he did. Yeah. You don't hear about that textbooks either. It's all, you know, uh, you know it's all other stuff. <laughs> well, Nathan, I certainly appreciate you taking a little time to, to uh, join us. And um, for our listeners, if you want to uh, learn more about his perspective. He, uh, but, but before you, before, yeah. you, before you go, do you think that the Federal Reserve is politically motivated? Oh, come on. I want Nathan's view of it. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, they certainly come up under great political pressures. And also it's committee, right? And so even though they tend to vote unanimously, so what's the point of having a committee? But uh, you know, committees tend to be more politically susceptible than individuals. All um, right. Because he, but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, if you wonder why, we estimate today that the value of the dollar is about 150th of what it was worth in 1960. You basically have a two cent dollar, and 98% decline. From what year? And from, from what the 60s, year? From, yeah. from the end of the gold standard era. And about right. why is that? And, and the one word answer is politics. <laughs> you know, we, fiat, floating fiat currencies, no matter all the, all the nice things that they say in public, they tend to have a, a tendency to decline over time. And we've been just the same as everybody else in that regard. Got it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming, Nathan. Again, the book, you can find it anywhere. Books are sold, Amazon, obviously. Uh, it's the title's Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It, written by Nathan Lewis, along with Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Ames. So thanks a bunch, Nathan. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, Pat, it's a, I mean, I guess the way you look at it, you could, I think Nathan's probably saying, all right, here's how, we think we should fix inflation. Which sounds like it should be like pegged to the gold. It's a political answer, obviously, right? Yes. That's, that's what this whole point is. But I, I think the other is for most of us, like, okay, well, how do we live in our environment today? We have inflation. How do we live with inflation today? Like, how do we think about our own budgeting? How do we think about our investments? What modifications may we need to do? Yeah, and by the way, the the, the just the, the way the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is actually constructed, just always perplexes me, because it doesn't assume change in behavior. You mean like if Budweiser gets more expensive, I sw switch to Coors? Lucky Lager. Okay, no, I'm, I'm taking it extreme. <laughs> Correct. I had a I had a um, I had a, a economy class at Long Beach State in college. I had a summer class. I had to make a book another. And it was this professor, and he would always use beer and cigarette analogies. And I think he was from, uh, I think he was Korean. It, Nothing like a good cigarette in the morning. First thing in the morning, so good. So he was hilarious. And uh, it was, whatever he brought up, whatever we were trying to talk it about, was always, it was always beer and cigarettes. Well, so Scott, excuse I a, me for bringing it back up. I had a class where uh, the econ teacher, uh, professor, t talked about marginal propensity to consume using a beer example. Okay, well, there we go. <laughs> right? But to your point, a lot of the CPI doesn't, it's, it's like, it, it, if it costs a fortune to fly, maybe I'll drive. Yes, or I don't go. Or I don't go, and I do a staycation instead. Yes. And or, then instead I'll buy something or different. I'm, I'm eating, you know, vegetables rather than ground beef. I mean, people change behavior. Yeah. Yeah. But I got to tell you, the supply chain, I think that in the long term, it's going to make uh, all countries, including the United States, much more isolationist. Of course. That's the. I mean, the, the whole just-in-time delivery. We're gonna like outsource every little thing we can. Now companies are thinking maybe I need to 
Maybe bring... being vertically integrated and closer to home is more important. Yeah, and maybe and maybe it costs a little bit more, but it's it's better off over the long term. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's take some calls to join the program. Eight three three ninety nine worth. That's eight three three ninety nine worth. And let's start here with Kathleen. Kathleen, you're with All Worth's Money Matters. Um, hi, I'm calling from California. Hi. Hello. Hello. And I have a question about some credit card debt. I have about 10000 that's at a 23 to 29% interest. And I wanted to pay it off. And I was thinking of using a loan from my 401k. Um, not only would I eliminate the finance charges I'm paying each month, but then I'm paying my back at 3% interest on the loan through payroll deduction. And it seems like that would be better than what I did in the first quarter of this year, which was lose 7% of the value of my portfolio. <laughs> yep. Yep. But, but, <laughs> but it wouldn't have, but that's a, that's a point in time. So let's talk about the credit card debt itself. Okay. How much would how much did you want credit cards a year ago? So you owe ten thousand now. How much did you owe a year ago? Um, I owed less, but we went through a lifestyle change where um, we purchased uh, an RV and became full time RVers. Okay. And so some of that went to furnishing. Um, First day needs for that. It wasn't a usual credit okay. card expense. You know, got it. It's, got it's it. For got this it. lifestyle change. Got it. And um, do you have any money in the bank? Uh, no, just a couple thousand. And just. And how old are you? Fifty-four. Fifty-four, and you're still currently employed. I am. And what's and I the, plan to work for several more years? What's the value of your four hundred one k? Uh, this one is is a small one because it's only been around for a few years, so I, it's about thirty. And what's day. and what's the other ones? Um, you know, I don't, I haven't really checked. Here, out that here's, I mean, as a general rule, I am not a fan of four hundred one k loans because it's not like a traditional loan. Like if you take a loan on your house, you're your, your, a portion of your house isn't sold. You're actually using the house as collateral, and you're you're borrowing money. When you take a loan from your 401k, what actually happens is they go and sell the securities, so you no longer have those securities working for you. It's almost like a withdrawal. Think of it like a withdrawal, other than that they don't pay, you know, they don't tax you on it. And then, of course, you have to make those payments back. And if at some point in time you don't make the payments back, whatever outstanding balance there is is treated as a taxable distribution. Um, I mean, so the biggest reason I don't like them is because you're using retirement dollars I, today to fund. I, I wouldn't. How much you earn, you and your spouse, how much money do you earn between the two of you? About one fifty. And you're living in an RV now, correct? And we love it. Okay. We get school teachers, so we get to travel all summer long. Beautiful. Nice. And you're living in an RV now, so your cost of living uh, um, should have gone down in the last six months. It mm. did. And our goal was to try to get closer to what we thought our retirement budget might be. Perfect. You can easily afford to pay this $10,000 off uh, over the next six months, and I'd much rather you do that 
then take a loan yes. on your okay. 401k. It's going to set now, your retirement. You down. said something there that that kind of bothered me though earlier. You said your account balance today on this account was about 30,000, but you said you lost $7,000 of it in the first quarter. 7%. 7%. Okay, okay thank you. That's nothing. That's normal. Yeah. I, I I was afraid it was seven thousand. I'm like, like how Whoa. did you lose so much money in there? Um, no. you, I love the fact that you guys are living on what uh, you're trying to get to a point where you know what you can live on in retirement, uh, and you're doing it in the right. RV. And then you guys are smart. Go get yourself a couple of cameras and then start doing some sort of video log, and then distribute it on YouTube and get rich that way. Yeah. It's, it's that yeah, easy. Yeah. It'll be, you'll be question. an overnight success. Well, Viral. What, what, what'd you say there? <laughs> what'd you say, Kathleen? We also own five acres in Idaho. Beautiful. Free yeah. and clear. Perfect, perfect. And what about taking a loan on that to pay off? It's 10 grand. You owe $10,000. You make 150 grand a year. It's 10 grand. Okay. I mean, Just it's 10 pay. grand. It's nothing. It, it, relative to what your income is, it's nothing. That's why I don't want you to do anything different. Just, you know. Well, the one thing I want you to do different is what some of those things that you bought on credit card. When you're making those payments, think of I mean, think about that before you buy some next thing. On credit yeah, card. yeah, 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 yeah. It's ten grand. You, it's it's nothing. You pay it off in the next couple of months. You just got to tighten up for a couple of months, which is what you're going to do anyway. You're going to learn to live off of what the salary is, what your pensions are going to be in retirement. So appreciate the call. Yeah, thanks for calling. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, we'll take some more calls and um, talk about more good stuff in finance. 833-99-WORTH. This is All Worth's Money Matters. Can't get enough of All Worth's Money Matters? Visit allworthfinancial.com slash radio to listen to the Money Matters podcast. Welcome back to All Words Money Matters. Scott Hansen. Matt McLean, thanks for hey, sticking with us. We'll, we have, we'll take a couple more calls here soon. But if you have a question that you would like us to address, whether it's can you afford to retire, do you have the right kind of investments, you own this particular investment that has gone down in value or gone up in value, should you do something about it? How do you best structure your estate? Um anything financial related, someone's pitching you some investment, you're wondering if that makes sense to you, we'd love to take your call, and just like we have other callers. Um, and so what we tend to do is schedule a time. We come to the studio periodically to answer calls, and uh, we can schedule a time when but works for both of us. But you get your question answered. Yeah. Live. You and I are live, but then it plays That's a couple correct. days later. That's correct. I'm not trying to explain it to you. I know you understand the process. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Scott, that is a good point. <laughs> I'm trying to explain it. We're not the only ones here. Okay. <laughs> There's other people. They're listeners. Yeah. Hopefully. Think of it like how Judge Judy does her. She tapes a bunch of shows, supposedly. Yes. On a, what, like eight or 10 weeks and then lives in Florida the rest of the time. I don't know where Judge Judy uh lives but she lives in um i was in this town i forget what it was Boca raton no it was uh naples naples someone wanted to show me where judge judy lived and oh. had zero interest where judge judy lives zero interest where judge judy lives. <laughs> i see it like when you go to omaha nebraska but, everyone wants to drive you by uh warren buffett's house every time 
like, hey, let's drive by Warren Buffett's house. I'm like, I was in Albuquerque. They wanted to give me the Breaking Bad tour. Oh, did you go? <laughs> I, don't, not, not, I did. I said, hey, remember that scene? We're driving down the freeway. Remember that scene from when, like, that's where that happened here? Oh, where they threw the pizza on the roof. What? The house. The house. You, you apparently can drive by the house and throw pizza on the roof. Is that what they do? It's part of the scene from Yes. That <laughs> I remember they, that now. Yes, I do recall that. <laughs> They've had problems. I've read an article about the people okay. living in that house. <laughs> they come home and there's pizza on the roof. <laughs> Like, of all problems to have them, that's not a bad one. I mean, particularly if you see it quick enough. You're like, your kids, dinner's ready. <laughs> Dang, we haven't had a pizza delivered in three days. I have the camera out front. I see when they drive up, they get out, throw it up on the roof. I send the kid up there with a ladder. Dinner's done. Most teenage boys would love <laughs> to live in that house. Anyway, we are way on top again. I don't know where I'm <laughs> My point. Uh, so you call in the show you call this number 833-99-WORTH that's 833-999-6784 or you can send us an email real easy to remember questions at moneymatters.com questions at moneymatters.com we will set up a time to have you on the program and we can talk about your question or talk about pizza thrown (laughs) on the roof but I just yeah I find it where I, I guess it it's a relatively new country, so you're, there's not a lot of great archaeology to look at ruins, right? Where you go to Greece, and you're not driving okay. by someone's house. The, well, there you're clearly to, this was inhabited by others before. Yes, but there was not a lot of. Um, yes, that, that's, that, that, yes. thank you. Yes. We're not going to see the Parthenon in in. Uh, in Nashville. In, in Nashville or if you've Omaha. Been, no, have you been to Nashville? There's the Parthenon in Nashville. I have been the to Parthenon? Nashville. The Pantheon? Is it the Pantheon or the Parthenon? I don't know. It's the Parthenon. I they built a, re- built a replica in Nashville. Oh. So when you're in Nashville, there. instead of seeing the music scene, you can go and see the Parthenon. All I, right. I well, ran by that. that. I was in Nashville. I went for a run, and I'm like, I, came, I hadn't heard of it. I'm like, what in the heck is this thing? I don't I like, know why it's I, I like Nashville. All right. We're getting way <laughs> off topic. <laughs> All right. I All did right, want to talk about. Let's go to the calls. Yeah, and, and then, then I want to talk about a couple things like yeah, SoftBank. Let's. Uh, oh, yeah. That's, That's amazing. Something. That's an amazing story. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to these callers because they're waiting for it. Uh, we're in California talking with Philip. Philip, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Thank you. Thank you for taking the call. Do you hear me okay? Yes, sure. sir. Yep. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, well, I had a specific investing question. I, I consider myself rather seasoned in investing, except for when it comes to options, which I don't, I've never understood how it works very well. And I've tried to read about it, but I guess I'm more of a learn as you do type person. And so I, I guess I'm actually going to have to execute it through to understand the mechanics. And I was hoping maybe you could discuss. Well, can, so and it's and I think people get confused sometimes on options because it sounds opaque. And but if you think, if you, Kind of step back. It's it was the, the options markets were were created as a, a way for someone to shift risk to somebody else. So if you go back, let's let's say you're a pig farmer and um, it, it, you know it's going to cost a certain amount of money to run the farm and certain amount of money for the feed, etc. 
but you don't know what pigs are going to be selling for whenever pig season. Don't <laughs> so know anything about pig, pig farming. Pig whenever you're selling your pigs, pig season. <laughs> you don't know what the market's going to be for your pig, so you think, well, shoot, I don't. I'd rather lock in a price today for the pigs I'm going to deliver six months from now. So, essentially, that that was how the options markets began. It's like I'm going to sell this today for a future price and somebody else says wait a minute i'm gonna that's a risk that i want to take i'm going to take this the other side of this transaction so the farmer guarantees a price in the future the pigs could be worth more or less if the pigs are worth less the the writer of the option guarantees a price in the future not the farmer the farmer is guaranteed a price in the future thank you that's correct. But the, the writer but, of the but, writer of the option is the one that, that guarantees that the price. But the farmer could still down the road say, "Oh shoot, I could have made a lot more money had I just held my pigs and sold them at, at, in the at market." Or, man, aren't I smart that I sold these early because the pigs' prices have gone down? And the person on the other side of the trade is going to win or lose based upon where the price. So, at its kind of core, that's what an option is. Now we've the financial markets have. <laughs> Gone to a place where you can have those kind of bets on just about anything you want, and you could tie all different things together and make a big bet like that. Um, and then you could have, but it's still a zero sum game. So in the pig example, it's not like more pigs are going to piglets are going to be created based on these products, or it's going to be more efficient for the farmer. It's a zero sum game. When one person makes a dollar, someone else loses a dollar. So, do you have a specific question about options? Yeah, well, thank you for those examples. I, well, I, I guess I understand, you know, with the put and a call, the call being probably more of the bullish outlook and put the opposite. I just, I don't really understand the mechanics of how to actually execute them. I, I, I guess the lowest risk thing you can start doing is right. I guess they're called in the money put. Yeah, yeah, correct, correct. You can't, you know, absolutely, right? Uh, it's in the money puts. <laughs> you could in the money puts. Um, and what you're doing is you're selling the upside of of, of any one particular uh, investment that you own, but you're covering it. Um, I don't understand why you would why you why will you why you would use those in a portfolio. I don't understand why. Well, I understand why people use I them, and I have used puts and calls in my portfolios before, but I don't understand why you not would. very often, very very <laughs> rarely. <laughs> Very, very rarely, because there's an expense associated with that. Either win or lose. Either if you're getting the premium or not, you're still actually giving away something. So what what are you trying to achieve in the portfolio that wants you to actually explore options? Well, I've read and heard it's a, another possibility of a, another source of cash flow, especially if you're in that seller, them obviously not paying the premium but collecting it. Correct. Yeah, here's, how, here's how I mean – I honestly don't view this any really any different than, um, you know, some people study poker really well. And if you you know how to play poker well, you can if you do that, you can make some money. If you know who to play against, it it's a zero sum game. No, it's it's not like investing in something that over long term is going to increase in value. So you need to be smarter than the other than the person on the other side of the trade. Yeah. So if you're selling covered calls. What you're doing is you're collecting a premium in order to give away 
uh, um, an upside in a particular stock and the person on the other side of the trade is betting that that stock is actually going to go up higher than what you just sold that call for. So who's right, right? Because you get the premium, but maybe the stock gets called, right? And then you missed out on a, a bit of profit there. So you can... You, in the example you're using, you collect the premium, but you have to sell your position to the the buyer of the option at the price, yeah. at the strike price that's, to set up the contract for? That's right. That's right. Even if, even if it's lower than whatever the price is. No, no. If it's, if it's below, they would never exercise it, right? They would never exercise if it was below. There wouldn't be any point to it. But what my point well, being... What I mean is you sell it to below what it is now, right? Well, that's... I, yeah, I think you're talking about shorts there, but but you're you're. Let's say the stock is. Worth, I don't think this is a winning strategy long term for investors. Yeah, but let's just let's walk through. Let's say the stock is trading at ten dollars, and you sell a call on it at eleven. So you collect a twenty five cent premium for this call at eleven, and the stock goes to twelve. Mm -hmm. Right, the stock goes to twelve. You actually have to give them that stock. That's right. Right. Because you sold you, that right. You sold that right at 11. Did you make money? Well, when you say give them the stock, you, it, it's a liquidation, right? You still collect the $11, even though it's less than... Yes, that's correct. That's, that's, correct. that's correct. But at the end of the day, you now have $11.25. Had you not done anything, you would have a, a security worth $12, sure. right? Sure. And so, so... I gather in what you're saying, recommend even doing any kinds of options or, or very limited, if that? Well, the only time, look, look, I don't know anyone who's, I shouldn't say I don't know anyone who's created wealth. If There are some traders that are typically brilliant mathematicians that have created me, some quant models that can make some of these hedge funds that have done pretty well. Look, look, very rare. Let me tell you, let me, I'll give you an example where I recommended uh, someone use options. There was a real estate developer in 2008 that was like, man, or was it 2007? Ah, this real estate's going crazy. I've got all these positions open. I own tons and tons of homes and all this empty land and this thing, and I am really freaking out about the market. Like a farmer with a lot of pigs. What am I going to do? And I said... You could buy, you can buy puts on developing comp, you know, companies that develop properties, the home can, builders, and all on the home builders, on mortgage things, and you're going to give yourself some downside protection without having to liquidate your like position, like an insurance premium, like an insurance premium, like an insurance premium, because he didn't have time to liquidate the stuff. It, he he wanted to live through it, but he felt he was too far out on the risk scale. So that's when we think using options are appropriate but, but about risk mitigation, not so much on trying to enhance returns, but using it for an average investor that's saving for retirement is not appropriate at all. And, and it's, it's a losing game. Yeah. You'd, you'd be better off over the long term to By hang. its nature. It's a, it's a losing game. It, it's a zero sum game. And then there are costs involved. And when you factor those costs in, it becomes over the long term a net loss. So you, if you're going to play that game, you always have to be smarter than the people on the other side of the trade. And that's uh, – so, Anyway, appreciate the call. Tough one. Yeah, glad you called.
it is a good and it, options are popular. I mean, Robinhood they like to get people to trade options because they make Robinhood makes money on those things. Let's talk now with Jeff. Jeff, you're with Allworth's Money Matters. Hey, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. We're glad you're joining us. Um, basically, my question is: is I think I'd like to accelerate paying off my house. Okay. And I have roughly about four years left on it. It's a real low interest rate. And I have enough. My cash has been kind of building up and sitting there in the account doing nothing, not yeah. earning anything. And if I throw 10000 of it towards the principal, it'll cut off about 13 to 14 months worth of payments. Okay. And then it'll be. And my question is, I'll still have about $7,000 in cash for like I'm on a high deductible health plan and also my homeowner's insurance has high deductible. So I'm not draining my cash down because I always get nervous when I don't have yeah. any cash. Okay. You think that's a wise idea? Uh, I mean, so you have 17,000 in cash today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, are there any other sources of cash you can grab if there was some sort of emergency or something was going on? Or Yeah, I could go to my brokerage account and probably carve off some of the fixed income okay. if worse came to worse. But I don't want to do that, and I don't want to go into the brokerage account and try to sell investments, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything. And how, then, how, what, what do you have that you can grab? Just if there was some sort of emergency that whatever you couldn't work for. I mean, in worst case scenario right now, the brokerage account is sitting at about 78,000. And then I have to be careful because I'm on the ACA program. And if you bring in too much income onto your taxes, you lose your advanced premium tax credit. So then you become on the hook for the whole, your whole yearly premiums, you know, Oh, the ACA is the health, uh, health plan. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way I can stay in retirement right now. My health plan is on the bottom of the rung. It's like the bronze. And I think since I kept my income really low, I, I think the advanced and, premium tax credits, like about 800 a month. So what, um, what's the interest rate on your mortgage? Super low, uh, 2.39. And so, t- so I, throwing, I 10, throwing about, 10 grand on it, it's going to save you in one year, 200, $239. That's the savings. Yeah. So what you need to ask yourself, are you comfortable taking getting rid of 10 grand out of your account and throwing it against the mortgage you'll to save $239 over the next 12 months uh, knowing that your cash reserves have depleted from 17 to 7. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it the masses don't do it, <laughs> but like a lot of money things it's always emotional. I, always, I just want it done. I just want it out of my well, the face. Math, yeah. I mean, the math says do it. The statistical chance of, of something happening and you needing more cash is probably small. But yeah, you, you, you might say it's kind of worth it to have it for essentially $20 a month interest is what you're talking about. Yeah. Five All bucks right. a week. That's Yeah. And um, one last question. Do you think they're really going to means test Social Security people if you have enough oh, yeah. assets? Oh yeah, wow. Yeah, but it. But the, the question our, is, we both believe that. W- w- the question we don't is, know. We don't know. Well, clairvoyant. Chris Christie, when he was running for president, said it should be on incomes over a hundred thousand. 
So well, there's been a number of uh, uh, senators have stated the same thing on both sides of the aisle. Yes, correct. So, but if you look at it, who who do they raise taxes on? Rich people. Why? Because they could pay the money. So if they're going to cut benefits, they're not going to take them away from poor people. They're going to take it away from yeah. rich people. And quite frankly, what do you, what do you think? Bernie, if Bernie Sanders were president today, what do you think? What are you doing Social Security? Oh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, come on. So, so not very much a stretch. But but it but there, uh, you I could make an argument for and against it. I really could. I could make an argument why people over two hundred thousand dollars a year shouldn't actually receive Social Security benefits. You want me to argue for it? Then I'll argue against why they should. The, the other side of the argument. I could make both sides of the argument. Yeah, money you contributed it's supposed to be for your benefit. Right. Correct. But then. But that's not what my argument doesn't matter. It's what they're going to do. And it's going to happen. <laughs> that's what happens in the back rooms. It's going to happen. And gets thrown in some obscure. Do you bill. ever think, Scott, do you think you're going to receive Social Security benefits? No. How old are you? I am 56. And you're planning on working for a long time. So your full retirement I... age is 67. Yes. By the time you get to 67, it, you think that there'll be some sort of means test that's not going to allow you to receive 10, it, 10 11 it, years. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, me. eleven years from now, we're gonna the Social Security trust fund is gonna be bust. hundred yeah. percent. I don't think I'd be. I don't either. I mean, if I do, great, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bank on it. So anyway, appreciate the call, Jeff. All right, Pat. You you said you wanted to talk about SoftBank and their Vision Fund. So SoftBank. We Bank. talked. To, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. No, we talked about this when they first came out with this several years ago, four or five years ago, whatever it was. Which essentially, SoftBank Group, it's one of the uh, big tech investors. Yeah. Their chief executive, Mr. Sasayoshi Sun, created the SoftBank Fund, Vision Fund, raised $100 billion. By far the largest. Venture fund of its kind, hundred billion. So investors say, "Hey, here you go, Mister Son. Uh, find some better investments that I could pick on my own. Find be- some better investments that something that's going to do better than the broad stock market. Um, find us the next best thing." And he was talked about transform transformational technologies. And but he got his background in Alibaba, which is the, the equivalent to like an Amazon. Yeah, and big became in, very wealthy in 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 the China e-commerce, which, by the way, just is perplexing to me completely how the Chinese economy works um, in private companies because you don't do anything without the blessing. You don't do anything without the blessing of the government. It's like Russia. Well, they people disappear. So there's business people that disappear in China. So it's, it's not too far traded. different, is it? No, no. So anyway, so it raises a hundred billion dollars, and so it really came to light when uh, he was one of the biggest backers in WeWork. Yes, I mean just a colossal failure. And if you read the book about WeWork or watch one of the documentaries, it. It, it is a and and doesn't portray a very nice portrait of Mr. Song. Yes, and remember when we work with this when Scott it, it never did go public. It was always privately traded. Oh, didn't it just recently go public? It tried to go public. Oh, whatever. I, that's I where zero interest in the that's story where it anymore. blew up. 
is when they try to go public and then they actually release their financials and the SEC filings and people are like- but Didn't they go public in the last year? Well, they may have gone public subsequently. At a completely different valuation, completely different story. Completely different story. I don't know. It could but be when wrong. it came out, you and I on this show talked about how this isn't really that transformational because it is least office space. We work. We work. Yes. Regency. But, and, and this whole $100 billion fund, one of the things we said early on, like, how do you find the diamond in a rough, which is what you need to do to, to earn excess returns on funds like this, when you have $100 billion to deploy? Because you like can't- Most funds limit. Like, we're raising a $2 billion fund or a billion dollar fund or 500. They'll limit and close it off to investors because if there's too much Cash, they got to go find places to invest them. And, and so they can't buy 10,000 small companies. So they turn around and actually start investing in publicly traded companies. Some private, some public. Uber. Yeah. So they have just, they, $13.2 billion the end of March, but it has gotten worse. It's the end of March that they lost. Yeah. It has gotten worse since then. You wonder what their final return is going to be. Um, but they, I mean, they DoorDash and I would, all the hot I stuff. I would argue that at the end of this, Scott, had you gotten the S&P 500 fund and left Mr. Sun out of the equation completely, that you probably would oh, have done better. come on. Left. Already you would have. No, by, by far. Yeah. So then the end of, they, I mean, Actually, I, I misspoke, Scott. It wasn't $13 billion, It was $26 billion loss by the end of March. Twice what I just said. $26 billion, down 26%. And that was the end of March. So, well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's... Uh... So even professional investors that take big gambles. Was he a professional investor or he did well... Was he an entrepreneur who did well in one area, has a lot of charisma, and parlayed his charisma and his and his success to become an investor? And that's the that's the narrative. That's the story he wrote for himself. I wouldn't I wouldn't say he was a great investor. He's no Warren Buffett. I'm gonna go. I with think that. it's a, I think it's the lesson to be learned on a story like this is just because someone made a fortune in one area doesn't mean they're going to be able to do it in other areas. I would agree. Particularly when you're talking about passive investments in companies, which is what he was looking yes. at doing. Acting as a quasi-mutual fund. I guess, with different fee structure. Yes. <laughs> but much more <laughs> significantly expensive. More yeah, expensive. significantly more expensive. Anyway, unfortunately, we are, uh, we're running short on time and we're going to have to say goodbye here. Um, but we... We broadcast every week at the same uh, radio station, if you're listening on the radio, or if you are got a podcast. And if I you, think we drop on Saturday mornings. If you do listen to a podcast, if you'd be so kind as to rate us. Review. Review. I I, I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> you say yes. I know there's no rating thing on them. It's a review. Review Give us. us a review. Yeah, but they could give you stars. That's a rating. I guess you're right. So I, it's a rating. Yeah. You can rate without a review. So do do both, please, because our marketing people keep telling us if we get enough listeners, we're going to hit a tipping point. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, thanks so much for being with us. This has been All Worth's Money Matters with Scott Hanson. Have a great. 
This program has been brought to you by Allworth Financial, a registered investment advisory firm. Any ideas presented during this program are not intended to provide specific financial advice. You should consult your own financial advisor, tax consultant, or estate planning attorney to conduct your own due diligence.